Good morning, good afternoon, how are we doing? All right. As previously mentioned, we are in August, and that means it's Apologetics Month here. This is our second week. If you're just joining us, apologetics is the discipline of giving a defense of Christianity, and particularly the truth claims of Christianity. So this is our second week, and our guest speaker today is an incredible man, Dr. Greg Hazen. I could talk about numerous awards he's received in the, the publishing world, in the academic world, in the teaching world, but what I'd like to mention is just the fact that uh, he founded the apologetics program, their master's degree program at Biola, which means he's a man who spent his career and his life training and equipping others to give a ready defense for the Christian faith. And so rather than just all about building your own particular platform and brand, he spent his life pouring into others. So it's with great honor to introduce to you Dr. Greg Hazen. Thanks. Well, look at you out there. How fun is this? We just did a rocket ship back from Hollister. This is like the most exhilarating church ever. Man, they sweep you up and you go scooting off. You feel like, oh, man, the Secret Service has nothing over these guys. Wow. Oh, hey, before we get started, a quick commercial. I I brought some books up since they were just sitting in my garage. And... uh, Uh, And uh, this is my latest one I want to call your attention to. It's called Fearless Prayer. I didn't know how it would be received, but it's actually done really well. And and pastors have thought it's like the, that was like the most wonderful presentation of of prayer and so optimistic, I didn't feel guilty for a second because I guess that's what prayer books do to you. They make you feel guilty. Uh, This one is called Fearless Prayer, and it, it focuses on a passage in the Gospel of John that bugged the crud out of me for years. So I'm sitting in my quiet Bible reading chair, reading this again. And, it, and here's what it says in John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for anything and it will be given to you. Yeah, I didn't believe it either. Yeah, the, the, um, it's one of those things you go, wait a minute, what does it really mean, you know? Uh, after studying it out very carefully and writing a little book on it and the whole thing, I go, what do you know? Jesus really meant it. He really meant it. So, I mean, it has to be in proper context and the whole thing, but it's one of those optimistic, crazy things that the Lord said. And it turns out he meant it. And so check that out if you want to find out what that's about. And summer is still here, and so if you want to buy the, the novel that I wrote a few years back, which is sold by far more than anything else I've ever written, uh, Five Sacred Crossings. Uh, it's really, I mean, it's a fast-paced mystery story, story with a bunch of true stuff about Christianity plunked down in the center of it. Uh, unlike the Da Vinci Code, which was a fast-paced mystery story with a bunch of ridiculous things about Christianity plunked down in the middle of it. I think you'll really enjoy that. Uh, oh, and one, this, this actually got put in the box by mistake. It's called The Case for Grace. Makes sense, since it was a big mistake. Uh, uh, and by Lee Strobel. Some people say this is Lee's best book. Probably is. Uh, the, the only reason I carry this around on occasion is because uh, he featured me in chapter four. This is a <laughs> this is a this is a book that deals with you know down and out folks who uh, uh, who the Lord just redeemed in just miraculous ways. And so he uh, he featured me in chapter four, right between the between the the, the drug addict and the executioner. I'll let you figure out why. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the apologetics topic this morning. I'm thrilled to talk about it. I, I love talking about this thing probably more than any other apologetic topic, especially on secular university campuses, because they're especially skeptical. And when on occasion a Christian group is able to get me in as a speaker and actually get secular unbelievers to turn out for the, the talk, which usually happens if we buy them pizza or something, uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it, it ends up blowing their mind because they, they are coming to the talk thinking that I'm going to be talking about my, my personal religious feelings about some things. Really, that's what they think it's going to be about. And then they find out, oh my gosh, this is like, this is as scientific as anything I've ever heard. Uh, they, they get a little bit blown away. They just don't expect that. In fact, I gave a lecture at the UCLA School of Medicine a number of years ago, and it was getting near Easter time, and and they had a lecture series going. They said, we should invite some guy in to talk about the resurrection. And when they told me about this on the phone, in inviting me to come do this, I, I said, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if dead people can come back to life, young medical students should know something about that. <laughs> so they, they bring me in, and I give this presentation. And, and they were, again, they were expecting me to talk about, you know, my religious feelings about things. But I gave them this, like, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes presentation on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I remember it was a lunchtime lecture, and I could actually see what kind of sandwich they were eating because their mouths were hanging open. <laughs> Tuna. <laughs> um, so, uh, so... They, they, they were kind of agitated during the presentation, and that's not a good thing. I've been chased off of a number of college campuses, so, uh, they're, but they're agitated in a good way, it turns out, because a whole gaggle of them like, came up to pepper me with questions afterwards. And this one guy, I think he really spoke for the group. He said, you know, I grew, I, I grew up in a Baptist home, and all this. we learned all this stuff about, you know, we learned all the Bible stories and all that, but, but you're making it sound different. You're making it sound like it's true-true. Uh, you know, he, he was a medical student. He was struggling for some philosophical terms there, which he didn't have, you know. But, but what he meant by true, true is you're making it sound like it's really true, like you can know it to be true using the same kinds of methods of investigation and scholarship and academic work that, that we do here at the university. And that intrigued him. It's like he never thought that was even possible. So I'm here to proclaim that's exactly the case, and God, God wanted to do that for us so that we would know that the resurrection really took place so that we would have full confidence that we too will indeed live forever. This, this is really on my mind right now. I mean, just two days ago, a guy, a friend of mine, exactly my age, basically a refrigerator fell from the sky and smashed him. Uh, I mean, it was a... It was a it was a, uh, a diagnosis of a really tough form of leukemia, you know. He is, he's, just, uh, he's just reeling right now. You know, he just got the, uh, the diagnosis. And all I can think of was, thank you, God, that I know that he will live forever, and that I will too, and that my brothers and sisters who have committed themselves to him will live forever. God wants us to know these things. So, uh, I'll give you a little bit of evidence to shore that up. I wish we had the full semester or the full academic year where I could give you all of the evidence. There are books, generally, if they get written about the resurrection, they're like at least that thick. 
And, uh, and there are many of them that are that thick. And my, my dear friend Gary Haberbass is working on a multi-volume set of books that thick. On the, on the resurrection of Jesus, who would have thought there'd be so much important material? So I'm going to digest that all for you and give you at least a taste of what's going on in the field of resurrection studies. Uh, let me start off by uh, reading to you what I would consider to be one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. I did my doctoral work in religious studies, you know, comparative religion. So I, I, I've had a chance to read all of the great, you know, world religious literature and so on. And I got to tell you, I've never seen anything like this passage I'm going to read to you. Right? One of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. And it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing on the topic of resurrection. And in so doing, says a couple of things that are actually startling to the modern religious sensibilities we carry around. So I'll just read this and see if you can figure out why I would call this one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. Paul says this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Really? And then he continues. More than that, we, then found, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, empty, worthless, of no account would be synonyms for that. And you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, why would I call that one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature? Because it's madness. If you're trying to start a new religion, you know, Paul's, Paul's one like the executive committee of the Christian thing that's moving through uh, uh, the Holy Land at the time. And he says this. This is craziness. I mean, you better be able to pull this off. You better be able to muster the evidence for this or you shouldn't be saying something like that. You know? uh, it, it's like Paul hung the resurrection by a thread. Right? Here's the thread. thread. And it's holding the resurrection. And, it's, and he's inviting people to come along and just go snip and have the whole thing come crashing down. Right? Uh, that's, that's, that's craziness. Unless, of course, you can demonstrate that this thing really happened. You see, Paul was an eyewitness of the resurrection, of the resurrected Jesus. And he fully had confidence in God that God could protect that evidence as it rolled down through history and landed in our laps. He was very confident that that was the case, and I think he got it right. But in doing that, he, he made Christianity a testable religion, truly testable. He set it up. He set up such that if this did not happen, if Jesus really did not come back from the dead, go do something else. You don't find many religions bold enough to say such a thing. In fact, I've never seen anything like that in, in the history of religions. It's quite remarkable. So, 
Christianity is testable, and it's all hinging on the issue of the resurrection. Is it reasonable to believe that Jesus was alive at point A, dead at point B, and alive again at point C? I think the answer is this. It's a decided result of the historical record that that happened. And I think we can say that we know it happened based on the kind of evidence we have for that. And I don't mean no, I don't mean in a spiritual sense. Like, yes, I have a spiritual feeling that Jesus came back from the dead. That's not what we're talking about here. Is the evidence sufficient? Is the evidence clear and compelling that this really happened? A, B, C. I think it is. And I wish I had more time to give you the entire case, but let's, get, let's give you some of it. So, inside your worship folder, you will have a, uh, a couple of handouts, or maybe it's a two-sided piece. Uh, it might be a smaller version of this, but it'll look like this. You'll, it'll be very helpful for you to have this. In fact, it might be something you want to keep because it's, uh, it can really help you with that uh, agnostic uncle of yours when Thanksgiving rolls around. <laughs> and you're saying a long-winded, you know, uh, blessing for the food, and then he questions all of your religious ideas afterwards. This could help a lot. As you can tell, I'm describing a, a, a little portion of my, uh, uh, my time of life just after I became a Christian. You know, I had this uncle, the physicist, by far the most educated person in our family. He heard I'd become a Christian, you know. And he, he just wanted to figure some of this out, of course, over Thanksgiving dinner, you know, while, everybody, while everybody's listening. And, he, and he's like, so, Craig... Again, he's a really smart guy, you know, that builds bigger and better nuclear bombs or something for a living. Well, tell me, Craig, I mean, you don't really believe the Bible, do you? Here's a little technique, by the way, an apologetics technique you can employ. And it's called uh, ask of them as they ask of you. So he's asking me about the Bible. So, Craig, you don't really believe the Bible, do you? I said, hey, Uncle Rob, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I have something to say about that, but I'm curious, what do you think about the Bible? And then you sit back and watch the craziness happen, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. He said this. He said, yeah, you know, I was talking to the guys down at the lab the other day about that, and, and we're pretty convinced that the Bible was mostly written by inebriated monks in the 1500s. In case you're wondering, that's not true. <laughs> the, the whole inebriated monk thing. Uh, that, and, and so when I heard him say that, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going, oh, Lord, you have delivered him into my hands, you know? <laughs> And we had a great talk after that. Uh, but that's actually, a, a, the, I call it the golden rule of apologetics. Ask of them as they ask of you. See, it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Craig, you don't really believe the Bible, do you? And now he's expecting a defense. I don't give him one. I simply go, huh, that's a great question. Glad you brought it up. But I'm curious, Uncle Rob, what do you think about the Bible? Yeah? And you can do that with all kinds of issues that come up. And then you listen to them blather on for a while. You go, this guy knows nothing. You build your confidence. You actually build your kindness, too, because you're listening to him for a period of time, and so on. Back to the resurrection. So, you've got this page, and we are ready to roll. So let's say you want to defend the resurrection. Um, I remember when I wanted to do that, back when I was a young Christian, uh, the books that people would shove into my hands to help me along the path were uh, things like Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Remember that by Josh McDowell? And, uh, or More Than a Carpenter, much smaller book, but still very helpful. I remember reading those and, and enjoying them so much and going, wow, if this is what Christianity is about, I want to know more because it just really grabbed my attention. Uh, but, well, the, the, the way Josh McDowell defended the resurrection in those books 
is it's a two-step thing. First of all, you establish the reliability of the New Testament documents, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 1 Corinthians, maybe a little bit of Galatians. You establish the reliability of those things, that they were written by, you know, eyewitnesses, by close associates of eyewitnesses, that they're primary sources, that they were written early, that they weren't uh, tampered with, and so on. And once you demonstrate all of that, then you can open up the New Testament and make your case for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, right? And that's, by the way, that is a sound technique. It's logically coherent and the whole thing. And if you want to go that direction, you should. There is one problem with it, though, especially when you go to a secular university campus. It probably won't work. Why won't it work on a secular university campus? Because even though you spend a lot of time making the case for the reliability of the New Testament documents, they're not going to appreciate at all the New Testament documents. In fact, generally they say, look, uh, can you make your case some other way? Because we really don't want to sit here and listen uh, to you read from a book that's uh, homophobic, misogynist, violent, greedy, and offers up all kinds of terribleness, you know. Literally, they, they do not want to hear what the New Testament has to say. Now, maybe it's just the weird forums I go to. Maybe you've had more luck. But it's important to have a technique that can work. Now, it's a sound technique, and I think we ought to use it anyway once in a while to see how it fares. But we are the creative people of God. What if we come up with another way at the problem? And I think I've got that. It wasn't developed by me, but it was developed by a, a, a dear, close friend who's one of the world's experts in the resurrection. His name is Gary Habermas, and, and we call this... Uh, uh, the minimal facts approach. The minimal facts approach. And here's the technique. Uh, what if we, instead of cracking open the New Testament, what if we read through all of the major articles and books written over, say, the last 50 or 70 years that focus on uh, the historical Jesus and the purported resurrection? There is a lot of material there. And it's written in all kinds of different languages, but we uh, get focused and we read through all of it and we catalog all of the things that seem to be agreed upon across the board by the various scholars who write these things. And these are scholars who might do Greco-Roman history, they might do ancient Mediterranean studies, they might be ancient linguists, Bible scholars, you know, geographers, you know, all kinds of different people you bring to the table and find out what they think about uh, the historical Jesus and the purported evidence that supports the resurrection. So we read through all the material, we bring it all to the table, and we boil it down to some basic agreements that are pretty much across the board. So you, you with me on that? Boil it down. We got, we got a set of facts now that we can call... Uh, we can call bedrock factual material that even the harshest critics of Christianity agree with. You know, a Jesus-loving, Bible-reading Christian like me agrees with it, and, and wild-eyed critics agree with it too. That's, that's hard to find those facts, but they're there, and we've cataloged them, and that's where we're going to start. We're going to start by looking at the facts that are agreed upon across the board, whether people are Christians, atheists, agnostics, or whatever. And that's what you have right here. And if you pull that out, Jesus, did Jesus really rise from the dead? At the top it says, a list of the bedrock facts surrounding the death, burial, and purported resurrection of Jesus. Virtually all scholars in this field of study agree with the following. 
Now, I'll read through these and give you uh, some comments along the way. Number one, first fact that is agreed agreed upon across the board. Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus died by crucifixion. Uh, Now, right at the beginning of this little phrase is is a word that's very helpful, Jesus. <laughs> they, they are assuming that Jesus was a real historical figure, and that's very helpful. There are some internet kooks and crazies out there who don't think that Jesus was a real historical figure. Uh, in fact, I remember reading a book by a guy. He, he wrote it maybe back in like the 1960s uh, when he was at Harvard Divinity School. It was called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. And his basic thesis was that Jesus wasn't a real historical figure. Rather, the name Jesus was a, uh, was a code word for hallucinogenic mushrooms. And, and Christianity can be explained by people popping shrooms and, uh, and going on psychedelic trips and seeing all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, so forget about it. that's off the that's off to the margins. He did not make the cut. Sorry, bud, but uh, that's really not going to make it. Jesus is a real historical figure. Scholars know that, and it's uh, it's beyond reproach. And he died by Roman crucifixion. Didn't almost die. It's not a legend. This really happened. He was he was put upon a cross and he was killed. Uh, One reason that scholars across the board really do think Jesus died and didn't maybe faint or something, you know, because that's one possible explanation. People just thought he was dead, and they brought him down from the cross, and he later revived or something. Uh, Scholars don't agree with that, uh, whether they're liberal or conservative. Uh, One reason is in the modern world of science, we're able to do some experimentation. So if you go, you can go to a physiology lab and they can wheel in graduate students and crucify them in the lab and find out what kind of reaction it has on them. <laughs> I kid you not. Now, they didn't actually drive spikes through their wrists and ankle bones, but they did tie them to a cross beam and hung them there for a while just to see what kind of stress it induced. And it was very distressful, right? Uh, and so what happens, what they've learned through careful physiological analysis of this is that when you, when you die of crucifixion, you're dying from asphyxiation. You're not getting proper air exchange. Not, you're not getting enough to keep you alive. It's not about the nails in your hands and feet. So they nail you up, and the, the, the role that the nails play is to give you tremendous pain every time you want to breathe. Because in order to get a breath, you have to push up with your ankles and pull up with your wrists so that you can get your diaphragm to descend and your intercostals to expand, get that negative pressure to bring in the, uh, bring in the air. Uh, but every time you get that breath, it's, it's rubbing against a, a nerve here. I think it's the ulnar nerve. Uh, and it's the same thing in the, in the foot bone. It just, it's it's horrific, and of course, they're still not feeding you or giving you any water, and the birds are pecking at your face and the whole thing. It's a miserable experience no matter how you slice it. And, but people die from it. Uh, they die because they're just not breathing. And you know when they're dead. You know it. You know why? Because they're not pushing up for air anymore. If they stop bobbing, they're dying. And uh, once they're just hanging there, if you leave them for a good hour or two, you can be sure they're dead. So we can know that people died, and that's why people think that Jesus actually died by Roman crucifixion. 
Number two, he was buried. He was buried. As Jesus was buried, most likely in a private tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. A few years ago, I just simply had he was buried, and the scholars across the board would agree with that. They've, they've actually drilled down on this quite a bit, and they, they're pretty convinced that the tomb Jesus was placed in was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And it was a rock-hewn tomb. That is, uh, it, was, it was a piece of rock that they just, they just scraped and scraped until they got a room and they, they, they made a burial chamber in that way. So that's, that's uh, fact number two, that he was buried in some way. And there's a number of ways to bury people. You can throw them in a common pit grave. You can dig a hole out back. You can put them in a rock-hewn tomb and, and kind of inter them in the side of that. That's, that's all possible. But in this case, they think Jesus was buried in the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Number three, soon, soon afterward, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. That is, soon after his burial, the disciples were really bummed out. Now, this affirms that there was a merry band of followers, uh, a merry band of followers of Jesus. And, uh, and that they were pretty bummed out that this had all happened. That's helpful. Not nearly as helpful as number four, though. Check this out. Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his burial. Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his burial. Uh, the reason even the skeptics and agnostics and atheists in our survey crowd, uh, thinks that the empty tomb is a real part of the story is because the empty tomb pops up in every important historical source that even the critics embrace. So you cannot just kick the empty tomb off the stage. It's got to be front and center and part of the story. In other words, you've got to explain it in order to make sense of whatever theory you're proposing. So Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his burial. Very important. Number five. The disciples had experiences which they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. So again, we've got, we've got his merry band of followers confirmed. And uh, don't forget, skeptics think that they really saw Jesus alive again. Right? A number of his followers really thought they saw him alive again. Uh, this, let, me, let, me, let me show you how uh, scholars have approached this. There's one German atheist, and his name is Gerd Ludemann, and he wrote a book on the hallucination theory trying to explain number five. He thought it possibly could be explained through individual hallucinations and mass hallucinations. That just shows how carefully uh, he took this and how serious he was about this particular historical claim. The disciples had experiences which they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. He tried to explain it via, uh, uh, via hallucinations. He got a little bit of uh, slapping around by the psychological community because he wasn't really handling the notion of, uh, of hallucination quite right in order to make his case. But I think this shows that he was taking it very seriously. And it shows that this is not just a project for 
Christian scholars that even atheists are digging deeply into this because the, the factual material is so strong and profound. Number six, you might want to put a star by number six. Number six might be the only fact we actually need in this whole list to make the case for the resurrection of Jesus. Number six says this, due to these experiences, that is, due to the fact that they thought they saw him alive again, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed to the point of willing to, uh, the point of being willing to die for this belief. So something happened in the disciples and made them go from despondent guys who just wanted to go back to their fishing boats to wild-eyed proclaimers of the death and the resurrection of Jesus around the entire Mediterranean region. They just couldn't wait to get out there and do that. Something has to explain that transformation. The transformation is a known historical fact. It's part of the list, and it has to be explained. Honestly, there's... I don't see any other possibility for explaining that particular fact then. Jesus actually came back from the dead. They saw him, and it changed everything. It especially changed their attitude towards uh, proclaiming what Jesus had said and, and what he had done. Uh, because they, uh, they, they knew he was alive, and they knew that he had promised that they would be resurrected as well. So they had no qualms about rushing headlong out into the dangers of the Mediterranean region, proclaiming this tremendous message, even knowing that they would likely lose their lives. Something, something was in them that was transformed. And that is a powerful point. Number seven, the resurrection message was the center point of preaching in the earliest churches. Right? So if you look back at the earliest messages that Christians were giving in their early churches and and house meetings and so on, it was, uh, it was all and almost completely focused on the resurrection. Why is that? That has to be explained. It could have been something else, right? It could have been, uh, why not uh, focus on love, the, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's pretty comprehensive. That's a wonderful message. But no, they were obsessed with the idea that Jesus came back from the dead. They couldn't shake it. And that has to be explained. I, I have an explanation for it. Jesus really did come back from the dead. And it's so stunning to them that that's all they could talk about. Uh, so the resurrection message was the center point of preaching in the earliest churches. Number eight, this message, resurrection message, was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus died and was buried shortly before. So most of the early proclamation of this resurrection is happening in Jerusalem. But think about this. If the resurrection was a fabrication, a legend of some sort, you wouldn't expect it to emerge in Jerusalem, right? Because there were too many people who just had a vested interest in pulling the plug on that whole thing. In other words, they could have, they could have trotted out uh, counter witnesses all day long, maybe, to to say this never happened. If, if the resurrection were a legend, you'd expect it to arise in some far-off city, maybe Alexandria or Antioch or Corinth or Rome, but not in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's where everything happened. You, know, you wouldn't have planned it that way had it been a legend or some weird story that you were writing. But the fact that it happened where all the, all the action was uh, actually points to the fact that it was legit. Number nine, 
As a result of resurrection preaching, the church was born and grew. What in the world gave Christianity so much traction early on to propel itself out into the Mediterranean region uh, in, in the face of all the opposition that was sitting there waiting for them? Uh, I was talking to a professor friend of mine who's a historical sociologist, and he says, yeah, one of the, one of the biggest mysteries in, in like religious historical sociology is trying to figure out how Christianity got started in such a... Uh, a fast and furious fashion, right? How did, how did that happen? We know how it happened with Islam. It's very simple. Uh, in order to uh, enhance his uh, prophetic words, Muhammad uh, raised up an army, and it became much easier to uh, move his new religious ideas forward with an army. You, you simply march the army into the next country, subjugate it in the name of Allah, and you're off and running. So, Knowing how Islam got traction makes a lot of sense, but Christianity was a religion of persuasion. You know, how did, how did it get such traction? Well, it makes a little bit more sense when the, the message they're talking about is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, his followers were running headlong out into the Mediterranean region, giving their lives for the cause, and that produced tremendous traction. Number 10, number 10 might be as powerful as number six. Sunday became the primary day of worship. Why is that a thing? Well, who were the earliest Christians? They were Jewish converts to Christianity. And as Jews, when did they worship? Well, they would worship from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, the traditional Jewish Sabbath. And how long have they been doing that? Thousands of years. How deeply ingrained was it in their mind and culture? About as deeply ingrained as anything could possibly be. And yet, a group of Jewish people now following Jesus steps over into Sunday morning as their time when they gathered and worshiped God. Why? Well, we know that Sunday morning is the weekly point of commemoration for uh, the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we meet on Sunday mornings. It's a, it's a long-standing tradition. But for a group of Jews to suddenly do that, something huge had to have happened in their midst, something that just shook their world, like Jesus coming back from the dead. That could actually explain that shift. But that's a very powerful point, giving the, uh, the rock-solid nature of traditional Sabbath worship and the, thing, the thought that it would move to a new day. Number 11 and 12 were very similar, but very powerful. James, who had been a skeptic, was converted to the faith when he believed he saw the resurrected Jesus. A few years later, Paul became a Christian believer due to an experience which he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Don't forget where these facts came from. It wasn't from the you know, Jesus-loving evangelical theological society. It was from a group of scholars across the board, many of whom were skeptics, unbelievers, agnostics, and atheists, and so on, but still had requisite degrees and uh, expertise in their area of study. We bring all these facts together, and this is what we get, and it's quite a, a stunning picture of the idea that Jesus really did come back from the dead. But to, to do this properly, though, we need, to, we need to take the next step. 
So if we're good scientists, what we have here is a, is a body of evidence, right? Maybe we've been working in the lab or out in the field and we've collected a bunch of data points on butterfly migration, right? Now what we want is a theory that can capture all of the work that we had done, you know, all of the important factual material we brought to the table. We want a theory that can capture it, make sense for, of it, and move it forward. That's what we're up against next. What, what theory can we find that can capture these 12 facts and make sense of them the best? That's when this is going to come in handy, the handy-dandy resurrection chart. Step right up, get your... Everybody have a handy-dandy resurrection chart? Oh, good. Uh, I wouldn't call it a handy-dandy resurrection chart. You may actually lose some uh, prestige in your uh, lecture partners. Okay, at the top it says the tomb of Jesus was either occupied or it was empty. And this is a way of just organizing the material. Uh, and the empty tomb theories are broken down into natural theories and supernatural theories. Now, if you follow down the lines, you run into a group of names like unknown tomb, wrong tomb, legend, rescued by Allah, identical twin, hallucination. Those are all the names of various theories that have been proposed over the centuries to try to make sense of uh, what really happened in the life of Jesus. So, and then if you look down, there's, uh, there's numbers attached to each of those names. Those numbers correspond to the facts that I just read to you. And so if, a, if it's a good theory, it's, it's none. Because uh, none of those uh, facts go against the particular theory that's mentioned. But if there's a lot of data points here, that all those data points are going against the theory. It's a bad theory. So, you would think, so we're looking for none. All facts fit that particular theory. We don't want a theory that where all the facts don't fit, like, like the legend theory. It says 1 through 12. All 12 data points stand against the legend theory. So, more on that in just a second. So let's try a few of these on for size. Uh, time is short. We don't have the entire semester, so let me give you a, a taste of some of this. I'll go, in fact, I'll go straight to the legend theory since it's so miserable in its ability to handle the factual material. The legend theory simply says this, the resurrection was a fabrication that evolved over a lengthy period to vindicate a leader long since dead. It's a legend. It's like, it's like uh, Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox. You know, it's not real. Nobody, nobody thinks it's real. But it's, it, it might make you feel better for a period of time and uh, answer some of the weird questions you have, but not in a real scientific kind of way. That's what's going on here. The problem is with the legend theory, it's the worst theory of all based on the factual material. As you can see from the chart, it misses on data points 1 through 12. That's every one of them. But here's the weird part. Guess which is by far the most popular theory out there among secular people. It's the legend theory. That's the one they use to explain, uh, explain away Jesus and his purported miracles and so on. It's all, it's all legendary, but it actually misses all of the important factual material that even our harshest critics agree with. All right, let's move on to uh, identical twins, since that actually only misses on two data points, which isn't bad given the construction here. The identical twin theory says this, Jesus died and was buried. 
But soon thereafter, his long-lost identical twin brother emerges on the scene and is worshipped as the risen Christ. Right? Hey, it's not bad. I, I got lots of stories to tell about that theory because a guy did it as a doctoral dissertation at UC, University of California in Irvine. And I set up a giant debate, and there's all kinds of intrigue. But he, he was trying to propound this idea that Jesus had an identical twin brother, and that answers most of the questions. It's, uh, and it doesn't do bad compared to the others. However, it misses on data point number four. Data point number four says Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his burial. Well, if Jesus had an identical twin brother, the, the tomb would still be full of Jesus. Uh, so... Uh, Say Jesus A is wandering the earth, uh, uh, he's accused, he's crucified, he's buried, and then Jesus B comes onto the scene soon thereafter. You know, lo, it is I, right? That's the way they talk. You know. Lo, lo, it is I. And uh, he looks just like Jesus, and everybody's stunned by this, you know? But then after a couple of days, they're looking at him and they go, you know, how come this Jesus has a farmer's tan? when the other Jesus had a carpenter's tan. And how, how come he has a slight accent? You know, that's kind of weird. And so somebody could have gone to the tomb, you know, and they could have rushed down there, they could have opened it up and they found another body in there and it looked just like Jesus. So uh, it, it misses on data point number four. I'm claiming it also misses on data point number 11. James, who had been a skeptic, was converted to the faith when he also believed he saw the resurrected Jesus. Why is that a problem? Because this particular James is the uh, brother of Jesus. Really, you think Mary forgot to mention that there were two babies and that one of them was carried off by wolves to be raised by, you know, nomads or something? Uh, that, that's not going to happen. You know, so uh, even if it did, you know, and, and James is on the scene and he's seeing his brother, you know, and uh, it's, it's all sounding a little strange. He could have used some technique to, you know, out the guy. You know, uh, like POWs used to use when they try to out spies in their ranks. Anyway, so it misses on two important data points. It doesn't do very well. And it, it definitely needs to involve a conspiracy theory, which always counts against a particular historical theory. That's not going to work very well. You got your hallucination theory. You got your existential or spiritual resurrection. Jesus didn't come back in his body. He came back as a spirit. That's what the, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. Uh, then you move over into the other side of the coin, the empty tomb theories, where you've got the disciples stole the body as a theory. That's literally the oldest one in the book. You find that in the Gospel of Matthew. And it really never gained traction there, uh, although we still remember it because of Matthew's Gospel. The authorities hid the body. That was never one that was viable because the authorities were always interested in bringing the body out. You know, let's close this thing down. Show us the body and we'll, uh, we'll call it a day. Uh, but the body never came out. The swoon theory. Now, we'll take a look at this one because it only misses on two data points, and that's not bad given our spread here. The swoon theory says this. Jesus did not die on the cross. Rather, he fainted from exhaustion. The cold temperature in the tomb and the spices uh, revived him. So the way this works is, uh, they, they crucify Jesus. They think he's dead, but he's not really dead. They just couldn't detect his pulse or his breathing. So they think he's dead. 
uh, and they bring him down from the cross. They put him in the tomb, but first, of course, they wrap him in some spiced linens, you know, a burial practice of the day. So he's sitting, he's lying in the, in the cool of the tomb, and these spices, these aromatic spices are like going up his, you know, nostrils and so on, and, and act like smelling salts and wake him up. Okay, now, uh, let me say uh, 19 completely ridiculous things, and then I'll conclude. Uh, so then Jesus either, uh, he, he, he tries to figure out where he is, right? Fears it's a tomb. And he, he then either moves the stone or tunnels out. And then he either sneaks past the guard or he overpowers them, right? Uh, once he's done that, he, he makes his way into Jerusalem. You know, he's still wrapped in mummy clothes, so he's walking light. And he makes his way into Jerusalem. He thinks he knows where the disciples are, so he knocks. They open the little hatch. They look out. They don't see him because this weakened Jesus now is just... I mean, the guy's been crucified, for goodness sake. He's in terrible shape. And, and he slides down to the doorpost. They, they open the door after the next knock, and there he is. And what do they do at that moment? All the disciples standing around Jesus. Jesus is barely alive sitting at the doorstep. Uh, what do they do? Do they go, hallelujah, this man has clearly conquered death for all of us. Yay and amen. Do they, is that what they do? Uh, no, they go, oh, goodness. And they scoop him up and they put him on a donkey and they trot him down to the Jerusalem General Emergency Ward. And, uh, they, and they do their best to bring him back to life. You know, whatever, they, whatever it takes. You see, and scholars in, in the 1800s who were kind of fond of this were taken to task by another liberal scholar going, guys, you're, you're completely missing the point. This was supposed to be a transformative event. And a guy who barely survived a crucifixion is not a transformative event, you know. Uh, but the, the kind of Jesus we see appear to the women and later to the disciples and to the 500, a very different situation. He was clearly a man who had conquered death. So the swoon theory misses out on some very things. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. And then we've got the problem of uh, the transformation issue in the disciples. Well, now we're down to two then. Okay, so it comes down to two theories that seem to capture all of the data points. Uh, the space alien theory, and then the God raised Jesus from the dead theory. All right? So, those are your choices. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, don't leave. Sometimes people leave during that. That's not a good thing, because I'm... I'm teasing. Uh, what are we going to do with this alien business? So I put it on the list first when, when I was in grad school in Santa Barbara. I went to a, a New Age Expo of some sort. And there was a booth there. And the booth was like wisdom from ancient astronauts, you know. And I had to go chat with these guys because nobody else was chatting with them. So I went up and started talking to them. And, and uh, they, they were convinced that you could explain all of the Miracles in the Bible through, uh, you know, space alien technology, right? All right, let's hear what you got. So I heard them describe all this. They were talking about cloaked motherships orbiting the earth and tractor beams and transporter beams going at just the right time to do this, that, and the other thing. All the great miracles of the Bible could be explained through this kind of alien technology. And, of course, they, they don't have a shred of evidence for the alien technology, but... Uh, they were very enamored of it. And it but the bigger picture act 
actually led me to say this. You know what's weird, guys? I think you're right, in a sense. I mean, I don't know about all the tractor beams and cloaked motherships and all that stuff, but I think you got the basic form right in that Jesus was raised by a power from beyond us. God the Father gave the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And we have excellent reason to believe that that God exists. And so the reason uh, makes much more sense in, the, in this case, that, that God is doing the work. So we've, we have excellent reason to believe that Jesus did indeed come back from the dead. And the only theory that really captures all of the data is that God raised Jesus from the dead. It is a supernatural event, but that ought not to disqualify it at all. Uh, the, the solid historical evidence is clear and compelling that Jesus was alive at point A, he was dead at point B, and he was indeed alive again at point C. I wish I could go through all the various objections and all the basic stores of evidence that we have for this, but that'll have to wait for another time. Let me simply give you a final word of encouragement. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 15 again, this time starting with verse 20. Paul writes this, but Christ has indeed raised, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ first, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Uh, the bottom line is this. If you trust in Christ, you will live forever. And I think we can know that to be true. You should embrace that with all your heart and thank God every day for it. Thank him now. Father, thank you for giving us everything we need to focus on you, to worship you, and to trust you for our eternal life. Thank you for not leaving us stranded in our own time without a witness, but leaving a tremendous trail of evidence back through history, testifying to what you did on our behalf. We couldn't be more grateful. Father, I pray that, uh, that this joy and this wisdom would overflow in my brothers and sisters here. And I just pray for this church, Lord, that you'd continue to make it a beacon for the love of God in this valley and way beyond, Father. I pray that they would even look back at, at this time as a point where things really took off and the work of God was done in profound ways as they move forward. Thank you for this body of believers, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. For those of you new to the church, or even if you've been here for a few years, you may not be aware, but this is actually the third time Dr. Hazen has been with us. So thank you for being a friend to this church now for quite some time. He has some books for sale out under the table, and if you have any questions, feel free to go talk to him there. Let's stand as we close. The central claim of Christianity and the center point of human history is God himself crucified on a cross for sinful men. And the good news is that this God did not stay dead, nor could he stay dead. He triumphed in victory. He was raised by God the Father, and in God the Son's resurrection, we have forgiveness of sin and a promise to new life. So go today walking in the grace, mercy, and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.